Welcome to another episode of Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a true crime podcast from Lee Enterprises. On our last two episodes, we centered the show on articles from the early 90s and conversations with Lorraine Ahern, who was one of the reporters who was there in the newsroom at the Greensboro News and Record as bodies of women were being discovered and police debated whether or not they had a serial killer on their hands within the city limits. I'm Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises and a co-host and a co-producer. And I'm Nat Cardona, the other half of this production and hosting duo. If you're new to the show, make sure to go back and start with the first two episodes. There, you'll find a pretty solid introduction to the crimes and the community that they affected. Today's episode jumps ahead about a decade or so and puts a spotlight on articles that revisited not only the criminal at the center of it all, Robert Sylvester Alston, but also Larry Darby Jr. Darby was wrongfully charged with the death of Bernice Robinson. He was also suspected of being connected to Alston's string of homicides and later charged and jailed on flimsy evidence. It wasn't until after spending six months in a cell that genetic tests proved Darby's innocence and he was released, but the damage had been done. Even after his release, Darby found that he had been marked with an indelible scarlet letter that doesn't wash off very easily, if at all. In 2015, Darby returned to Greensboro after leaving for the better part of two decades, and by chance, found his way back into the pages of the news and record. This time though, he was painted by journalist Nancy McLaughlin as a victim of the criminal justice system. After a short break, you'll hear the first half of my conversation with Nancy. And interspersed, you're gonna hear excerpts from the 2015 article that Nancy wrote, as well as relevant bits from articles that we're going to be pulling from even further back in the archives. I'm not going to necessarily cite dates and authors in the audio that you'll be hearing, but we'll have much more detailed information, including links to everything that you're going to hear in those show notes. So make sure you check those out there. But now after this short break, you'll hear Nat Cardona talking with Greensboro News and Record reporter, Nancy McLaughlin. back through um, just your history at the News and Record um, and your journalism history and all of that jazz. Bring me back through when you started writing for them and where you are at today, basically. I joined the paper more than two decades ago, right out of school at Chapel Hill. And I have covered a lot of different beats from education to government and features. And I sort of mix them all together with what I do now, which is pretty much finding good stories. I still have to do the daily minutia of, you know, when the weather changes and snow is coming, but I also have an eye out for really good stories that might draw in readers. Perfect segue right into it. The detective laid five pictures on the interrogation room table in front of Larry Darby Jr., and placed a hand on his shoulder. And then he said, Why did you kill those girls? Darby recalled. More than two decades later, Darby still gets teary-eyed and angry, remembering what happened that day. The pictures were of five women, mostly in their 20s, believed to be victims of a serial killer who worked the Martin Luther King Jr. Drive area, which at the time was an open-air market for drugs and prostitution. Police had just discovered the body of a woman he had been seen with earlier in the day. It would take six months for DNA testing 
still in its infancy, to help free Darby. While another man, Robert Sylvester Alston, eventually pleaded guilty to four of the murders. No one has ever been convicted in the case of Bernice Robinson, the woman Darby spent time with earlier that September day in 1992. Her throat was slashed to her spine. Police had traced the string of killings back to April 1991. Despite posting a $21,000 reward, distributing posters, and even erecting billboards, investigators were no closer to making an arrest when they found Robinson's body within hours of her death. As far as Larry Darby Jr. goes, how did that all come about? We're really interested in how he came on your radar. From what I believe, it was kind of a weird way of how he popped onto your radar. Yes, he had called the paper and he had moved back to Greensboro and he needed help with something minor. His mother had just had a stroke and I think that he thought that she was going to lose her home. So he called the paper and was asking questions and someone sent him to me. As I talked to him, I put his name in the system and I was like, whoa, this guy has a story. So we talked and he said that he felt some of her troubles were because he had come back into her life and that people were still upset about his involvement with Bernice Robinson before her death. He supposedly ran into her twice. He had a really violent history and he said that he changed his life and went into the ministry but people weren't believing. Darby had a criminal record and a complicated life tempered with contradiction. This included a stent in reformatory school when he was 11. During a teacher workday at J.C. Price, the black school in Warnersville, he had gone into Wiley Elementary and taken a sip from a water fountain. A white man caught him in the building and called police. It was while in reform school, Darby said, that he learned how to defend himself. I broke a lot of jaws and ribs, Darby said of his young adult years. He had jail terms for robberies in his 20s. Two times he escaped from local prison camps. When he wasn't being a criminal, he was serving the church as an associate pastor in Greensboro and Thomasville. Darby says police never talked to people who could have established his alibi. Instead, police put pressure on his friends and family. I knew in my heart my brother did not do that, said Leslie McNeil, Darby's younger brother, who just had graduated from Grimsley High School at the time. Going through it was stressful for my parents, but we knew he didn't do it. During Darby's court appearance following his arrest, Robinson's mother called him a murderer. Darby's mother stood up to defend her son. She said, Your Honor, my son ain't no murderer. A mother, better than anyone else, knows their child, and she knew. She knew. I then came across the name of Robert Alston, and I was looking and I said, oh my gosh, he was a serial killer, and he's been in jail for 20 years, and he's only 46. So that piqued my interest. So I called the prison and tried to get an interview with him. 
as far as Darby goes, you know, and he he calls you with this concern, that exchange of how he gave his backstory, that wasn't on that first initial phone call, was it? No, in the first story, he was just looking for help. And I actually went out to his mother's house, which is close to um, a big college in this area. And I went out there. And so I sat down and as we talked, he talked more about his background. And I told him, I said, well, I went back and looked at old stories and you have quite a history here. And then we started talking. At first, he didn't want me to do a story about him, but then he didn't care because he was like, I want to help my mom. So then we started talking about the specifics and exactly what he did that day and why he's still in fear for his life. The first thing that came to my mind was, I mean, how open book of a guy was this? I mean, I think that he had an incentive with trying to help his mother. And he thought that he would come back 30 years later and maybe some of the people weren't still here, like the family of Bernice Robinson and others. But he found that he was running into them and he thought that they were causing problems for his mom. So eventually he opened up, especially when I said, well, I read about you. So that's how we got to there. Darby spent much of the six months in jail preaching and holding Bible study in his block. One evening, when he was preaching, a guard came to ask him his clothing size. He was about to be released. The test results had come back. No traces of his DNA were found on Robinson's body. That left a case with no physical evidence, one based solely on the eyewitness accounts of three people. The case against Darby was dismissed. It was a decision with which police at the time publicly disagreed. Without a doubt, we have the man, Lieutenant Jim Hightower of the Criminal Investigation Division told the News and Record in March of 1993. The DA is the one who elected not to prosecute. It'll probably never be solved. Alston, a 29-year-old dishwasher, admitted killing four women, but not Robinson. In 1994, a woman who was raped and left for dead picked Alston out of a police lineup. He confessed to that rape and later to killing one of the women. He ultimately confessed to three others. You know, after that meeting, or it probably even happened before then, what was that like pitching this aspect of the story to your editor? They loved it because it was an unsolved murder still. And they thought it would be interesting to go back and pretty much talk to the cop, talk to Darby, talk to the family and see if maybe after all these years, if there was another person who did it, then maybe bringing all of this back up might jog somebody's memory or give the cops incentive to reopen the case. So um, they were very interested in it. You know, with every story you do with someone who was involved or police thought had committed a crime, you know, you're really careful. So they wanted me to be careful because, as I said, I tend to go to people's homes and sit on their couches and talk to them pre-COVID. So they just wanted me to be careful, but they were really interested in pursuing this. The natural follow-up was bringing back up the whole Alston thing. And you, like you said, you he's a young 
guy at the time. He's 46 years old, and that's kind of bizarre. Right. But just so, just for my, you know, my need to clarify here, you said you, you've been there for, like, the better part of two decades. But did you know of him before, you know, this whole Darby thing and then, you know, how it led back up? I mean, was this, like, a, a prevalent story that you knew for all these years or... When it first started, I was a young reporter there at the paper, and I knew that the police thought that there might be someone in the area targeting prostitutes in that part of the community. So I was always careful, but it never really stuck that it was so close to me. And probably because, you know, when you're new at a job and you're learning everything and you're getting assignments, you're not really paying attention to everything that's going on. I knew that the cops were looking for someone that he was targeting prostitutes and I knew to be careful, but it just wasn't a story that was on my radar at all. I think that sheds a lot of light on when you are a new reporter, new journalist, and your mind is like, just overwhelmed with all the things you want to keep that first job out of college. Right. I feel that feeling. I I totally get that. That makes a lot of sense. But I I was reading the stories because we had some really good writers and reporters covering it. So I was reading some of the stories, but it just wasn't on my radar that I could stumble upon some of this later on and be responsible for writing it. Darby said he remains angry that the police haven't apologized. He said he internalized the stress of what took place two decades ago, and he attributes some of his medical issues to that. He has heart issues, cirrhosis of the liver, and is blind in one eye. My life has been so hard since then, Darby said. They ain't never apologized. Never said nothing. Recently, he was at the house of a friend when a relative of Robinson's dropped by. The man recognized Darby. Darby recognized the moment. I will probably always have to be aware of the people around me, Darby said. So you talked with Nancy and I don't know the everything with Larry Darby Jr. It was Lorraine, I think, who mentioned there being multiple layers of victimization when the police arrest the wrong person and kind of railroad them into something. And going into this and revisiting those articles and hearing your conversation with Nancy about her talking with him and the way that this had kind of maybe not like wrecked, but definitely derailed for a significant period of time, his life. It's a different kind of victimization than what Alston was doing, obviously, but you can almost put Darby on that list of, you know, victims. Very fair to mention. He got caught in the crosshairs. Yeah. Just another on the list of getting your life totally off the trajectory that you probably planned. And if it wasn't him, it would have been, you know, could have been somebody else. Like anyone who had potentially had a conversation with Bernice on that day was fair game, it seems like, based on the reasoning by which they arrested and charged Darby. Yeah, they just went for it. And I still, it's hard to believe that he sat for six months just staying out, waiting to get released. I mean, I'm glad that it got somewhat rectified in the end. I believe that he said that there was no real apology 
or anything that was handed out to him or anything like that, which is the very least that you would hope for. Yeah. And you, you kind of said it, it's, I feel bad saying this wrecked his life, but from all accounts, that's what he told Nancy. And he was the whole thing of why he ended up opening up with Nancy was because he was worried about his mother and how she was going to be viewed in the in the community and that kind of thing so he wanted to clear some things up and i'm i'm glad he had that opportunity i'm glad that nancy was able to figure this all out it's just nuts how that all came to be Mm -hmm. just from a simple phone call about nothing else she just had to call him back and be like oh are you are you the guy that you know got oh yeah i was that guy terrible you would have to mention that Alston never admitted to Bernice's death. She is mm-hmm. on the list of people who, who he supposedly did not kill, but and thus her her death still is unsolved. Her murder is still unsolved. And Nancy mentions that mm-hmm. as one of the reasons why it was such an interesting article and story for her to be following in interviewing him. Uh, but it's it's left it open for the community to continue to hang him out to dry regardless of any actual evidence or clearly you know lack of of any evidence connecting him to to the crime it's a tale as old as time this thing is played out a million times and just America alone just somebody gets pegged for it gets cleared of it and then their name is marred forever and always kind of try and keep your head above water and get your name back in good graces with people they make shows about it for god's sakes you know it's just too bad um yeah i'm you know glad that darby clearly had a you know supportive family who you know came to court and you know spoke in his defense and you know even his his fiance on the night that Bernice was murdered, you know, she says she talked to him on the phone about, you know, 15 minutes or so and before 15 minutes or so before the time when Bernice was last seen by anyone other than Darby. And then his fiance also said that he came home from work normal, <laughs> just like sat down. And it's not the kind of thing where you're going to have some kind of shifty eyes. You're going to have the, you're going to be acting funny, whatever that means. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like if, if you're in a relationship, a long-term relationship, you know, where it's a fiance in their case, you know, when your significant other is when something's off. And if you don't have those red flags, then I feel like that's, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's not the kind of thing that you can hang an entire argument on either way, but in the absence of any physical evidence, which they didn't have at all you don't throw a guy in jail for six months and then when the dna evidence comes out the police department was still saying you know it doesn't doesn't mean he didn't do all these other things yeah and the you know you mentioned the you know not even getting an apology and i don't know if it's just one of those legal things where if they were to give any kind of apology on record that would be a some kind of admission of guilt 
Well, and then you can have a civil case and get sued and all these kind of things. I mean, it's definitely probably in your you being a department best interest not to go say that you guys yeah. messed it all up. But it's just an embarrassment, uh, you know, for all of them. And I mean, nothing about this makes the police look very good at all. Yeah. Ugh. That just it's something that drives me crazy. And now again, I'm probably going off on a little bit of tangent here. I come from a law enforcement family, so I'm very pro those people that are in that line of work and how hard they work and that kind of thing. But I've always been taught there there are always bad eggs and there are people who are bad at their jobs because you'll have that in any line of work. And it's just really frustrating when you you know that people can do so much better in in law enforcement because there are so many people that do. And it's just very, very disheartening when that happens. The thing that was that really stuck out to me with Nancy and talking to her about her time and how the whole Larry Darby Jr. thing evolved into a story is I yes, I forgot how one would have to be ballsy enough in meeting Nancy to just go into this guy's house and kind of feel him out and see if he's going to bear his soul about the worst thing that's happened to him in his entire life. And um, that's just part of a journalist's job, of course. But it was it was a good reminder of how interesting and important it is to be a person like Nancy and to kind of have that ability to get this, you know, to make this guy comfortable enough to want to share these terrible things that have happened to him. It's, she set the scene really well. And I just think of her sitting on a couch talking to this guy. It's just quite the unique experience to say the least. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that leads us into a nice introduction to the next episode where Nancy is going to go into a, a space and the scenario that we're going to dig into next week is is much more fraught from the get-go, where it's Nancy actually sitting down and interviewing Robert Sylvester Alston, who at that point had been in jail for almost 20 years. Yeah, and I'm really excited for everyone to hear that conversation with Nancy because, hey, selfishly for me, it was pretty cool to listen to her experience and what happened with that sitting down in front of a serial killer for four hours 99% of people won't ever experience that but she did yeah so hearing that firsthand account was something my friend absolutely so make sure that you are subscribed to the show so you get that episode in your feed as soon as we drop it next Monday and thank you all so much for listening thank you Nat for joining me and Thank you to Nancy and to Lorraine for talking with us. And uh, we'll have links to everything in the show notes, as well as, you know, ways you can contact us and links to all the articles that we talked about and links to Nancy and Lorraine. And thank you all so much. We'll be back next week. See you then.